guests. How are you guys doing tonight? It is amazing to see you all here. Uh, last night you had an Aussie invasion with Phil here from Australia. Can anyone guess where this accent is from? Great Britain, yeah, first off. It's amazing how many people say like New Zealand or South Africa or Irish, but you guys got it in one. Good job. Wow, I'm so enjoying the weather as an English person. We don't get a lot of sunshine where I come from. Although I have to admit, actually, being here with you guys at this time of year in the States can get a little bit awkward for someone from England because next week you have a major holiday coming up that we're still maybe a little bit sensitive about. But we won't be talking about that this evening. Although, actually, I have to say, I found myself getting more and more patriotic towards America ever since I married my husband, who is from New Jersey, nine years ago. And, um, yeah, and these days I actually find myself getting really teary-eyed every time they play the Star Spangled Banner at a baseball game, so go figure. But I hope you won't have as much trouble with my accent this evening as Vince's Italian-American in-laws did the first time that I went to stay with them. And I was chatting to his great Uncle Big, and yes, he really is called Uncle Big, for about half an hour when suddenly he just totally interrupted me and he said, Doll, everything you say sounds so beautiful, but I can't understand a word of it. So hopefully you guys won't have that trouble tonight. But if you do have any translation issues, let me know and we can get my husband Vince up here and he'll translate it into Italian-American for you. You know, I've got to admit, when it comes to attending summer festivals like this one, I actually don't have a great track record. I'm hoping that Creation Fest can kind of be my do-over because the last time I went to a festival like this, I was 18 years old and I have to say it really didn't end very well for me. It was a lot like this one, except it was in England, so it was raining all day, every day. And you could really tell the people who were glamping in their kind of like glamorous RVs because everybody else was just totally covered in mud. But you know, I can remember getting to the second evening of that festival and this guy got up on the stage and he started preaching about the prophet Jonah and how God asked Jonah to do something that he really didn't want to do. And so Jonah turned around and he fled in the opposite direction as fast as possible. And as this guy was speaking, my heart, it just started pounding in my chest as I likewise felt God telling me to do something, to go in a direction that I really didn't want to go. And so what did I do? Well, I took note of Jonah's example and I ran away, literally. In my desperation to get away from the festival and from God, I abandoned both my parents' car, which I had driven to the festival, along with my 14-year-old sister, who I was responsible for that evening, and I paid 70 pounds, which is like $100, to get on a train and go 200 miles in the opposite direction and back to the very thing that God had been asking me to give up, but which I just didn't want to. And now one of my friends who was in the youth group with me, and she, she was really distressed by how upset I was because I could not stop crying. And so in her, she wanted to help me out, but she just didn't know what to do. And so she ran out and in her panic, she went and bought me an entire chocolate fudge cake, which she handed to me as I got on the train along with a fork. 
And you'll be pleased to hear that thankfully, unlike the prophet Jonah, I didn't get swallowed by an enormous fish. But I did, however, swallow that entire chocolate cake. In fact, I spent the next four hours on the train with all these random strangers just staring at me uncomfortably because they couldn't figure out why there was this 18-year-old girl weeping hysterically as she ate her way through a whole chocolate fudge cake. Now, it is a ridiculous story. It's also kind of a tragic one because, you know, deep down, it wasn't that I wanted to run away from God, but I was just so afraid to trust him with my life. I'm sure that there are many of you here this evening who are really excited to be here and you're excited to hear what God wants to say to you this week. But you know, for others of you, maybe it's not that straightforward. If you're honest, you have stuff going on in your life that leaves you feeling really uneasy or maybe kind of terrified by the idea of encountering God here this week. You're actually feeling kind of exposed and kind of raw, thinking like, what is God going to say to me? What does God think about me today? Well, before we all flee Creation Fest, clutching chocolate cakes and forks, I want to tell you a story about a woman who had a lot going on in her life and the day that she had an unexpected encounter with Jesus Christ. Well, unexpected for her anyway. She definitely had no idea that it was coming, but definitely not unexpected for God, who seems to have gone out of his way to make sure that this meeting happened. As the story begins, so Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee, and Jesus needed to go through Samaria on the way. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I am not the world's most gifted map reader. If you don't believe me, just ask Vince. I swear it's not my fault. Google Maps, it just hates me. But even I can tell you that Jesus' route planning here, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's highly unusual. Now, the land of Palestine, it was actually really small. To give you a sense of scale, you could fit Palestine five times into the state of Pennsylvania. And in the north, you have Galilee, where Jesus lived. And in the south, you had Judea, where the capital Jerusalem was. But in the middle, in a small area, you had an area called Samaria. And anybody who was reading this story or hearing it in the first century, they would be stunned by the first sentence. What do you mean Jesus needed to go through Samaria? What kind of good Jewish boy has ever gone through Samaria? Sure, it might be a geographic shortcut, but no amount of time saving could ever justify a journey through Samaria. Why? Because Samaria was where the Samaritans lived. And the history of the family feud between the Jews and the Samaritans, it was long, it was bloody, and it was bitter. But basically, it all just boiled down to the fact that the Jews believed the Samaritans were heretics and that they were racially impure. They thought that they believed wrong and they thought they were born wrong. And so the Jews did everything they possibly could to avoid those who they considered to be those mixed race Samaritans, while the Samaritans did everything they could to avoid those racist Jews. And yet rather than doing what any good Jew ought to do and take the long way around, we're told that not only does Jesus make this unexpected journey through Samaria, we're told that he needed to. Why? Because God had something to do there. 
Now, maybe some of you, you came here this week with few expectations. Perhaps some of you, you're even kind of surprised to find yourselves here and you've been wondering today, what on earth am I doing in this place? But you know what? God is not surprised. He's expectant because God has something that he wants to do here as well. And so Jesus and his disciples, they traveled into the foothills of Samaria, actually into a valley that looks a lot like this one, just with fewer trees. It was a lot drier until they reached a city. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. And it was about noon. You know, one thing I really love about living in America these days, I live in Atlanta, is that you guys are really good at talking to strangers, actually, especially Southerners. But this is something that is actually really difficult for English people because we are extremely sensitive to social awkwardness. That's the reason why I could spend four hours crying in public on a train and not a single person in that carriage asked me if I was okay. You know, it's not that they didn't care, it's just that English people, we really don't know how to talk to anybody. And so they were all sitting there just kind of cringing with embarrassment. But they went with the British motto in that moment of just keep calm and carry on. Just pretend it's not happening. If we just pretend like this isn't happening, then maybe it will just make it all go away. But you know, as, as sensitive as I am to social awkwardness as an English person, I can still admit that the embarrassment of crying in public on a train for four hours has nothing on the social awkwardness of this encounter at the well in Samaria. Because like in England, the culture of first century Palestine was governed by really strict social rules that you needed to live by so that you could avoid social scandal and shame. So any first century Jew who read the next words in this story, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, he would have immediately tensed up at the huge potential for scandal that is happening in this moment. And it's not only because she's one of these impure Samaritans, but even worse than that, she is a woman. And to a first century Jewish man, that is a serious problem. Because in that culture, women were stereotyped as both weak-willed and they were seen as sexual predators, which would mean that any man who found himself alone with a woman, he was considered to be in grave danger. There's even one Jewish law code that states it is more dangerous to walk behind a woman than it is to walk behind a lion. Isn't that insane? But if the social rules were strict for men in general, they were even tighter for religious leaders to the extent that a rabbi would never be seen in public with a woman, even his own wife. And in fact, there were some Jewish religious leaders at that time who were so worried about even catching sight of a woman that whenever they did see one in public, they would immediately cover their eyes, which meant they were given this nickname, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, because when they were walking around with their eyes covered to avoid looking at women, sometimes they would walk into walls or other sharp objects. And so they were kind of getting battered in this process of not looking at women. But you know, as if being a Samaritan and a woman wasn't bad enough, signs also point to the fact that this woman is a shamed woman. She's shunned not only by the Jews, but even within her own community. 
You see, it's really strange for her to visit a well in the middle of the day by herself when the sun was at its hottest, because most women, they would go to the well early in the morning together. And it's also really weird that she would choose a well that is over half a mile's walk away from the town when there were other wells closer to town. That is a long way to carry water. And both of these signs, they give us reason to believe that actually this woman, she's a social outcast. She's been cut off from her community. And last spring, I saw for myself just how devastating this kind of public shaming can be when I spent a week taking part in some outreach events on uh, the campus of UC Berkeley over in California. Um, I don't know if you guys know much about UC Berkeley, but I happened to be there during International Women's Week. And as UC Berkeley is the, um, the birthplace of the free speech movement, you can just imagine how wild things were on International Women's Day. There are a lot of women who are out with like signs and slogans. There was a lot of marching and yelling. Uh, there was actually a lot of anger and hurt on the campus that day. But you know, standing in the middle of this kind of crazy, hectic scene on the busiest road in campus, there was a girl and she was wearing fishnet tights and a short denim skirt, and she was topless, and she just had a paper bag over her head with only the eyes cut out. And you could tell that people, they didn't really know what to make of this public spectacle. Some people, they just laughed. They laughed at her, they mocked her. Other people, they clearly felt so uncomfortable that they just kind of cast their eyes down and they quickly hurried on by because they just couldn't bear to look at her or engage with her. But then, if you kept walking towards this woman and you got close enough, then written across the top of the paper bag, you could see these, these words were written. All five of my rapists are getting away with it. And then you looked into her eyes and they were just completely haunted. And you know, I can remember as I was standing there, just kind of stunned and heartbroken and I found myself wondering, you know, in a culture where so many people see Christianity as racist and sexist and judgmental and oppressive, what would Jesus Christ have to say to her? What would he have to say to her? But you know, then I realized I actually already knew. I knew exactly what Jesus Christ would have to say to her. How do I know? Because I know how he responded when he was faced with a racially despised, second-class, socially shamed Samaritan woman. What does Jesus do? He asks her for a drink of water. Now, maybe to some of you, that seems a little bit disrespectful. Maybe you're thinking, hey, Jesus, what's going on? You've just met this woman and you're already bossing her around. What is the deal here? But, you know, if we think that way, we've actually completely missed the point. Because through this simple act of speaking to her, Jesus smashes through centuries of culturally reinforced racism, sexism, and social stigmatization, letting her know in one straightforward question that as far as he is concerned, he doesn't see her by any of the labels that other people have put on her. He simply sees her for exactly who she is. 
And, you know, the passage even tells us that Jesus' own disciples, who are used to seeing Jesus do all kinds of crazy and outrageous things by this point, even they are surprised to find him talking to a woman. And yet Jesus not only looks at this woman in the eye, he doesn't only speak to her, but the longest theological conversation that is recorded in the Gospels, he has with her. But, you know, perhaps even more beautiful than what Jesus is doing here is the way that he does it. Because his behavior flies in the face of Jewish custom, which actually taught, let no Israelite eat one mouthful of anything that is a Samaritan's. For if he eats even a little mouthful, it's as if he ate swine's flesh. And yet by specifically asking this woman for water to drink from her own water jar, Jesus is shattering her assumption that he sees her as unclean the minute he opens his mouth. One moment in his presence. And this woman experiences Jesus as someone who sees her as first and foremost a human being. Which is exactly the way that he saw the woman on that campus at UC Berkeley as well. As a human being whose value and worth can never be defined by anything that she has ever done or anything that could ever be done to her. But simply because she is made in the image of God and that is an intrinsic worth that is woven into her by the creator of the universe that can never be and will never be stripped away from her. And you know, in a day and age where civility is increasingly being lost in our public discourse and in our social interactions, we can learn a lot from Jesus here, couldn't we? Someone who acknowledges the person before the politics, someone who prioritizes relationship over rhetoric, and someone who sees an individual, individual as distinctive from their social identity. And you know, what about us? What impression are we leaving people with? What do the people who live on the other side of the self-constructed religious and social boundaries and barriers that we have made think? What do they come away thinking after they have experienced us? You know, for the woman at the well, Jesus' response here is a complete shock. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, for any of you who find it difficult to share the Christian faith with people who see the world differently, and to be honest, I reckon that is like 90% of us and the other 10% are just lying Jesus, he gives us a masterclass here in how to make everyday conversations meaningful. Notice that he doesn't give everything away at once because he intuitively knows that she's not yet ready to hear the heart of what he has come to say to her. And so first, Jesus, he has to move this conversation from the mundane to the spiritual. And he does this in this beautifully natural way, not by telling her what she has to believe, not by like smacking her over the head with his first century edition of the NIV Bible, but instead by piquing her curiosity. Curiosity, first of all, about God, if you knew the gift of God, 
then curiosity about himself, and if you knew who it is who says to you, and lastly, curiosity about what he has to offer her, then he would have given you living water. It's just like going fishing. Jesus is like throwing the bait, and then he's waiting to see if she's going to bite. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well, it's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You know, this back and forth between Jesus and the woman, it's really interesting because on the one hand, Jesus, he's making this clear contrast between literal water that you drink and the kind of water that quenches a thirst that goes way deeper than any physical need. And yet, despite these obvious spiritual undertones, twice in the conversation, we see the woman refusing to take the bait. Instead, she's deflecting Jesus and his offer with kind of deliberately obtuse humor. She's pretending that he's still talking about literal rather than spiritual water. But you know, I think her skepticism here, it's actually really natural, isn't it? Because most normal people, they don't go around making promises like the promise that Jesus is making. You know, sure, we've all had those kind of pop-up messages on the internet or those phone calls where you get an offer like this. Congratulations, you've won an all-expenses-paid vacation to Hawaii. To collect that vacation, just phone this number and give us your name and your credit card details. You know, the whole thing, it just sounds like a complete con doesn't it? You know, perhaps this is a woman who's been given empty promises before and she has learned the hard way not to fall for them again. Maybe like for some of us here tonight, the offer that Jesus is making, it just seems too good to be true. Heaven? <laughs> Heaven's just a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. Unconditional love, you say? Funny, that's what my husband promised me just before he ran off with my best friend. Love is a joke. Everlasting life? Seriously? I'm having a hard enough time with this life. Why on earth would I want to live forever? Satisfaction? Are you kidding me? Don't you know how empty I am? There's so much emptiness in me. You could drain a whole ocean dry and it still wouldn't be enough to fill me up. I think seeing how she is deflecting, Jesus decides to let her know that he's serious, that this is a serious offer. And so he gently pushes her further by saying, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. You know, I think one of the hardest things about getting to know somebody and stepping into a real relationship with them is that actually for a genuine connection to be possible, you can't just hide behind a phone screen with filters on all of your photos. You know, instead, if you want to be fully loved, then you have to let yourself be fully known. 
And that kind of vulnerability is terrifying, isn't it? Because what if you show somebody who you really are and they don't like what they see? Back when I was getting to know my husband, Vince, I really struggled with how terrifying I found this. And I was actually convinced that I didn't deserve him. And once he knew the truth about me and everything that I had ever done, then he would definitely walk away. And so I decided that the best thing to do would be kind of just rip it off like a Band-Aid and and give him everything at once. Just lay it down on the line. And then if he did walk away, at least it would be sooner rather than later. And maybe the damage wouldn't be quite so bad. And so I had the genius idea of writing Vince a list of 40 things that nobody knew about me. And then talking him through that list. Poor man, I think he still has nightmares about it, actually. If you ask Vince what that was like, he'll tell you that it was completely traumatizing. Beautiful, but traumatizing. In fact, it dawned on me a little while ago that actually Vince never gave me his list of 40 things that no one knew about him. And when I asked him about it, he told me, oh, that's because I actually wanted you to marry me. (laughs) You know, some of the things on my list, they were small and silly, but others of them were pretty serious. And I've never been more nervous in my life than I was the day that I gave him that list, because once I did, there would be no going back. Then he would really know me. But I think Jesus' words here to the Samaritan women, they are even more terrifying for her, because there she is thinking that her God is up, and she's just talking with a complete stranger, just having a casual conversation only to have her walls shockingly torn down in just one sentence and to discover that the stranger before her knows her whole life story. You know, people make a lot of assumptions about this woman based on the fact that she's been married five times. Assumptions about her faithlessness or what kind of wife she was or how she must have driven all of those men away. But before we throw stones, let's remember that while a man at that time was allowed to divorce his wife over something as trivial as if he didn't like her cooking, a woman couldn't even initiate divorce unless a man would represent her. And if she had been unfaithful, then the consequences for her could have been deadly. And likewise, if she was difficult to live with, that would have given her a reputation which would have spread around very quickly in a small community, shutting down any further marriage offers. So consequently, while it's possible that she was divorced one or two times by men, it's actually far more likely that in a time when people often died young, she is a widow several times over. Now, that isn't to say that she doesn't have her own baggage that needs dealing with. As Jesus himself points out, she's still living with a man who isn't her husband. But I just think it's important to remember that beneath these headlines of her story, this is a woman who is carrying a lot of pain, along with the social shame of whatever assumptions and rumors are being spread about her. Can you imagine then how she's feeling, wondering, what if? If this man knows this much about me, what else does he know? Is there anything left to hide? Does he see everything? And maybe there are some of you here tonight who, if you're honest, you know you've been in hiding. You've been hoping just to slip by unnoticed. But the raw truth is this. You are not unseen by God. 
He hasn't lost you in the crowd. Whatever kind of mask or paper bag you've been wearing, there is a living God who sees right to the heart of you exactly for who you really are. And understandably feeling raw, the woman said, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, at first, I get that her response here, it might seem like another attempt just to divert the conversation away from this super personal direction that it has just taken and kind of back onto a safer, random theological topic. It's as if she's saying, nothing to see here. Look, look over there. Look at that great big mountain. But you know, actually, I don't think that's what's going on. Why? Because this woman has just come face to face with a holy man who has brought to light her deepest and most painful secrets. She's been seen. She has been caught. And what do people do when they've been caught out, when you can't hide from it anymore? We try to fix the problem, don't we? You know, in our culture today, we do this by trying to prove that whatever evidence you might see to the contrary, actually, we're worthy of being loved. And oftentimes what that comes down to is proving that we're smarter or funnier or more successful or better looking than the competition. And if you don't believe that's how our society works, then just look at the way that we talk about each other, the way that we compete. We say things all the time, don't we? Like, she is completely out of his league or he's too good for her or he was really punching above his weight when he got her to go out with him. You know, whenever we talk this way, we're buying in to this unspoken rule that there's a standard that every person is measured against and we're all competing and how well you measure up will determine your worth and how lovable you really are. And sometimes the efforts that we go to to make a good impression, they can get totally out of control. My friend Andy was telling me an example of this, of how some of his guy friends, when they're on their way out to a date, they'll actually stop by the gym on the way just to like pump up their muscles to impress the girl that they're going on that date with that evening, which to me is like a crazy idea. Can you imagine you're on a date with somebody and over the course of the evening, you're just watching their biceps slowly deflating. It is a ridiculous thought. But you know, one way or the other, we are all competing to be loved. And back in first century Palestine, people were driven by that same instinct to prove themselves and fix the problem. But in those days, making the problem go away, that meant going straight to the altar to offer a costly animal sacrifice to God so that he wouldn't be angry anymore, so that he would find you worthy again. But in ancient times, they also believed that you can't just expect to encounter God anywhere. You're not just going to run into God. Instead, if you want to make a sacrifice, if you want to get right with God, then you've got to go up the mountain. You've got to ascend the hill of the Lord. And everybody knew that just picking any old mountain, that's not going to do it has to be a place that God himself has chosen. Otherwise, how do you even know he's going to show up once you get there? 
And this is why, as the woman, she suddenly finds herself really vulnerable before Jesus. And so this long, drawn-out argument between the Samaritans and the Jews about which mountain they need to worship God on, it suddenly takes on this whole new urgency for her. Because now she's been seen, and she has to fix the problem. But what if she picks the wrong mountain, and then her sacrifice isn't counted? Far from deflecting, this is a woman who is now intensely engaged in this conversation. Jesus has all her attention. And this question about mountains is actually really just another way of her asking him, where do I go to find God? If you're truly a prophet, then tell me, how do I encounter God? Maybe that's a question some of you here tonight are asking as well. If it's really true that God exists, if this whole Christianity thing is actually real, then how do I find God for myself? You know, Jesus' response to this question is astonishing. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. These days, a lot of people, they compare the search for God as as if it were like a journey up a mountain. In fact, many people today would even tell you, you know what, it doesn't really even matter what religion you pick or what path you choose to take because we're all just headed in the same direction. We're all just going up the mountain. Just live your own truth. Write your own story. It'll all shake out in the end. As one Japanese proverb says, there are many paths up the mountain, but the view from the top is the same. But you know, whenever people talk this way, they're assuming that this mountain is just going to be an easy climb, as if it were just like a small hill or something. But what if it's a steep, difficult mountain? What if it's Mount Everest? You know, any climber would tell you, you can't just pick any old route up Mount Everest and just start walking. That's a sure way to get yourself killed quick. And if it's that difficult to climb Mount Everest with other people even carrying your bags up for you, then how much more difficult must it be to get up the mountain to God? Because God is far greater than Mount Everest. And if even when we talk about other people, we talk about them as being out of our league, then how much further out of our league must a perfect God be? You know, no matter how hard we try, this is not a mountain that any of us can climb by ourselves. We will never reach the top. And yet Jesus tells the Samaritan women that a time is not only coming, but it has now come when the question about which mountain to sacrifice on, the question of how you find God, it really isn't even going to matter anymore. The question is about to be made irrelevant. Why? Why is this no longer relevant? Because people will no longer need to try and scramble their way up a mountain to find God. Instead, God is coming down the mountain to find us. 
In fact, the God who created the universe and who breathed life into humanity has already, in fact, come down the mountain. He's come all the way from heaven to earth to be with us. And now he's sitting beside a well in the hills right in front of her, face to face, having a conversation. She's already in the presence of the living God. She just doesn't know it yet. And not only has God come down the mountain to us, but just as importantly, God himself will also go up the mountain for us. God comes down the mountain to draw near to us, and God goes up the mountain to sacrifice for us. The ultimate sacrifice, the Son of God is already preparing himself to make that journey, to go up that mountain all the way to the cross, to be the only sacrifice that she will ever need. And when that moment finally comes, then people everywhere, they will be given access to God because the Spirit of God himself will be poured from Jesus and it's going to run down the mountain and come to dwell among his people in the very places that we live, in the foothills, in the valleys, in the private sanctuaries of our hearts, those places of genuine worship where believers draw close to God in spirit and in truth. You know, we take these things for granted now, but how stunning these words must have been to a woman who's only ever been able to worship God from a distance. Now to be told she's going to be given personal, direct access to God. But actually the shock is nothing compared to Jesus' final revelation to her. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one who you are speaking to, I am he. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this man who asks you for a drink by a dry, dusty well on just like a normal day like any other, and he turns out to be your longed-for savior, the hope of the whole world? You know, that is such a staggeringly outrageous claim. And yet somehow, despite how overwhelming that moment must have felt, she doesn't doubt Jesus any longer on account of both the claims that he makes and the knowledge he has of her. The woman is compelled to believe that he is telling her the truth. And yet I actually wonder if even more than all of this, even more than the fact that he knows the truth about her, what ultimately persuades her isn't that he knows who she really is, but it's that he doesn't hold it against her or put her to shame. It's that even knowing her fully, he still fully loves her. You know, just when Vince was getting to the end of my long list of 40 things that nobody knew about me, he came to number 37. And number 37 was one of the ones that I was absolutely dreading telling him about me. It was just four words but four words that I hoped I would never have to say in public to anybody. I never wanted to share this, ever. And number 37, it said this. I am a Trekkie. Yep, that's right. I love Star Trek. Thank you. We've got some fans in the crowd. You know, I am a total sci-fi geek. It's true. 
And it's something that my friends at school, they used to tease me about so much because this was way back in the day, long before the TV show The Big Bang Theory had come out and kind of created geek chic. You know, that became a thing, but it wasn't back then. And this was before Star Wars had come out as well, making sci-fi cool again. And to be honest, I'm not sure that I ever would have shared this really embarrassing fact with anybody, including Vince, if it wasn't for the fact that the new Star Trek movie was about to come out and I really wanted him to take me to go see it. I kind of figured the only thing more geeky than being a Star Trek fan would be going to a Star Trek movie all by yourself. And so I plucked up the courage to tell him, but deep down, I was dreading it. I was scared of his reaction because I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to think less of me for this. He's finally going to realize I'm really not as cool as I have been pretending that I am. You know, Vince, he didn't really say much when he read number 37. He acted really chill. So you can imagine my astonishment when one week later, as I arrived at the movie theater to meet Vince, he was standing right outside and he was wearing a T-shirt that had Mr. Spock's face on it. And the T-shirt said live long and prosper. And he was also holding this huge Star Trek poster with all the cast of Star Trek on and it said across the top, to boldly go where no man has gone before. At which point, I just ran and hugged him because I couldn't believe he was so willing to embarrass himself for me like that. You know, Vince, then he said this to me. He just looked straight at me and he said, Joe, I will never be ashamed of you. So you never need to be ashamed of yourself. I will never be ashamed of you. Thank you, we've got some R's down the front here. It's a good story. I will never be ashamed of you. So you never need to be ashamed of yourself. You know, at that point, I honestly cried. I did. Because you see, one week before, I had revealed to Vince the truth about who I was in all of my vulnerability. But it was in that moment that Vince showed me the truth of who he really was, that this was a man who was for me. And as we stood there outside that movie theater, I suddenly realized that, astonishingly, I no, no longer felt ashamed or embarrassed anymore. It was as if by literally and deliberately wearing my shame and my embarrassment so publicly that Vince's actions, they'd actually freed me from having to feel ashamed any longer. And I never have since, clearly, because here I am standing in front of thousands of you and telling you that story. You know, wearing that T-shirt, Vince took the shame I felt over something very trivial, but he completely transformed it into something that came to symbolize his love for me. But what do we do when our shame is not trivial? What about the woman standing in the square in Berkeley with a paper bag over her head saying, all five of my rapists are getting away with it. You know, there's no Star Trek t-shirt that could even come close to reaching somebody in that kind of pain. But what if there was a God so committed to the cause of justice and so outraged by her suffering that he promised that even though human justice had failed her, the divine justice never will. A God whose commitment to justice was so fierce that it took him all the way to the cross. The strongest and most overt statement God could ever have made that actually the ways that we debase and dehumanize and destroy one another is not okay. 
that it's disagreed with the life that God intended for us to live so badly uh, that the consequences were so serious that it cost the Son of God his life. That's how serious God takes justice. And yet at the very same time, this is a God who loves that girl standing in the square so much that he cannot bear to watch her suffer and stand by and do nothing about it. Instead, Jesus came down the mountain. When the Son of God takes on human flesh, he literally clothes himself in all of it, all of our weakness, all of our mess, all of our disgrace. And at the cross, when Jesus put himself in the position of experiencing what it's like to be defaced and dehumanized, it's as if in that moment he was literally wearing that paper bag over his head. Because you see, he was willing to be stripped naked like her. He was willing to endure public ridicule just like her. He was willing to know what it's like to wear nothing but shame to become one from whom men hide their faces and to experience unimaginable suffering and isolation and extreme violence just because as a loving God, he couldn't bear to stand by and watch her suffer. Instead, at the cross, he came to ensure that even though human justice failed, divine justice will not fail. And that even though human love may let us down, God's love will do whatever it takes to rescue us, even when it requires that he wears our wounds for us. And have you ever thought about how profound it is that even in his resurrected body, Jesus still wears scars. You know, the scars that we gave him, he's going to wear for all eternity. And it's this very same Jesus, full of grace and truth, who the Samaritan woman first encountered at the well. And typically throughout the Bible, the well is famous as a meeting place where a bride would meet her future bridegroom, which is why I don't think it's any accident that of all the questions Jesus could have asked her, he asked her about her husband. Why? Because after five broken marriages and the vulnerable living situation that she's still in, this is the moment when the Samaritan woman finally meets the one man who will love her like no other, her true spiritual bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who on account of what he's already committed to doing at the cross can say to her, as he says to the woman at Berkeley, as he says to every single one of us here tonight, you don't need to be ashamed of whatever you've been through because I have been through it too. Who says, I will never be ashamed of you. So you never need to be ashamed of yourself. You know, Jesus Christ shows the, Mar- the Samaritan woman the truth of who she is, that she needs him. And then he shows her the truth of who he is that he doesn't condemn her, but instead he offers her his very own life, a stream of living water that will never run dry. And what does this mean for her? Well, one encounter with Jesus and it changes everything. Immediately we see the transformation because the difference between someone who's living in shame and someone who's living in love is this, that those who know they are loved are unashamed to be seen. I can see this so clearly in the life of my goddaughter, Karis, 
who, her name actually means Grace, but when Karis was three years old, she would enter every room that she walked into by throwing her hands enthusiastically up in the air and exclaiming with joy, I'm here. You see, Karis, she wasn't afraid for anybody to see her. Quite the opposite. So secure was Karis in the way that she was loved that not only did she just assume that the whole time she'd been out the room, everyone was just worrying about where she could be because nothing was as good unless Karis was there. But she has no problem drawing attention to the fact that everyone can now at last stop worrying because Karis has arrived. Karis has no reason to hide because she knows she's loved in her entirety for exactly who she is. And that has freed her to be herself. And when she first meets Jesus, we saw how the Samaritan woman was hiding. Her defenses, they were just so firmly up, she built this huge wall. But you know, after their conversation, she immediately began to walk in the freedom of being loved that Karis has always known. No more keeping out of the way of her community. Instead, she becomes an impassioned evangelist. In fact, this is the first ever evangelist recorded in the Gospel of John, and she's a woman. It's like she comes bursting into town yelling, I'm here. Come and see the man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This is a woman so liberated by her experience of Jesus that she's now totally unashamed of drawing public attention to all the things she ever did. Because the very same things that previously were her source of public shame and disgrace have been transformed into the very symbol of God's unshakable love for her. And I wonder what it was that they saw on her face when she ran into town. Whatever the case, it must have been one stunning transformation. She must have been radiance. Because on the basis of her witness alone, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me everything that I ever did. Meanwhile, back by the well, Jesus tells his disciples, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white with harvest. And I wonder if Jesus is saying these words, even as he watches the women returning in the distance with her whole town following behind her. Because revival has come to the Samaritans of all people. And it begins with one woman at a well encountering God when she is at the very end of herself and in the very last place where she ever expected to meet him. Which, as it so happens, is exactly the place where God loves to meet us as well. And I saw this for myself that day at Berkeley, when as soon as one of my teammates, who's called Madeline, when she saw the girl who was standing in the square, she immediately felt God's presence with her, and she just experienced God saying to her, out of everybody here on this campus today, I identify with her. I'm here for her. And so Madeline, she approached this girl, And what she did, she began talking to her and she explained to her some of the things that I've been sharing with you this evening, that there is a God of justice, that there is a God of love, and there is a God who gives her profound worth. And as she was speaking with her, the girl, she just began to weep. 
and she wept and wept and wept. And then she threw her arms around Madeline and they just stood there together, clasping each other so tightly in the middle of that square and just crying together. And then Madeline asked her if she could pray for her. And the girl said, yes. And so they stood there holding hands together in the middle of that public square in Berkeley with everybody else walking on by and thinking like, what on earth is going on and judging the situation? But they didn't even care. They didn't care that it was in public. They just stood there with their eyes closed because that was the moment that that girl experienced for the first time that she was in the presence of the living God. That there was a living God who looked on her with love and who didn't see her as a second-rate, worthless, shame-filled woman. But he just sees her as his daughter, as his beloved child. You know, whenever I read this incredible story in John chapter 4, there's one detail that always catches my attention. It says this, Then the woman left her water jar. And Bible scholars, they'll tell you that the reason it says this in the text is to let us know she's coming back to the well again. But actually, I think it means so much more than this. I think what that means is that she doesn't need the water jar anymore. She doesn't need it because she's found a stream of living water that will never run dry. And there are some of you here tonight, you're dying of thirst. You know you are. You're here, but you're dying of thirst. And you've been running backwards and forwards with this water drawer, trying to find something, trying to find anything that can fill up the emptiness inside you and quench that desperate thirst. But you know, no matter how many different wells you've been running to, and no matter how many times you've gone back for a refill, it never works. It never fills you up. But you know, Jesus says, Tonight, come to me, all you who are thirsty. I've got what you need. You don't need to keep trying to scramble up the mountain anymore to find God. Because God has already come down the mountain and he is right here. His presence is here this evening with us. And he is standing right in front of us. And you know, there are others of you here tonight. Perhaps the thing that has been holding you back from God has been shame. You know, maybe you're someone who you just never feel good enough. You just never feel worthy. And no matter how much you're trying to like scrub this thing off, the shame, it just won't go away because it's so ingrained and it just feels like it's this stain on you and you can't get rid of it. You know, tonight there's a God who wants to free you from your shame There's a God who loved you so much that he was willing to come and wear your shame so that you don't have to anymore. There's a God who says, it doesn't matter whatever it is that you've ever done or anything that has ever been done to you. There is nothing that could separate you from my love. And if that's where you're at tonight, if one of those two apply to you, if you've been desperately thirsty or you just feel like you are drowning in shame, then you've got a decision to make tonight. You, know, you could do what I did. You could run away. 
You could just run away from the festival, whether it's tonight or tomorrow at the end of the weekend, and just go home and run away and run back into your life and keep chasing around with your water jar, trying desperately to fill yourself up with things that will never satisfy you and endlessly searching and seeking, but always feeling empty. Or you could run home still wearing your shame, still trying to scrub it off yourself, but just dying under the weight of a shame that will not quit. Or you could make the decision that the Samaritan woman made. You could throw down that water jar and you could run home free. And if either of those two things are speaking to you tonight, if you know that you are one of those two, that you're thirsty or you're feeling ashamed, and either way you know you need freedom and life, then in a moment I'm just going to invite you to stand. Stand where you are. You know, there's nothing magical about standing up, but it's just a way of drawing a line in the sand, of saying to God, I'm making a serious decision tonight. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to be free. And if that is where you're at, then I just want to invite you to stand now. Just stand. It doesn't matter what everyone else is doing. This isn't about them. This is about you and God. You don't need to hide anymore because those who know they are loved are unafraid to be seen. So if that's you, just stand. I can see people standing, but just come on and stand. If you're saying, yes, God, I choose you. I choose life. I want to be free. I don't want to carry this shame anymore. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. I want life. I want the life that you have for me. Just stand. And as people are standing across this field, I just want to invite you, if you are a pastor or a youth pastor, or if someone is standing near you who is a friend or a family member, then would you just stand with them? And would you just come alongside them and pray for them? Because, you know, when God calls us, he doesn't just call us by ourselves. He calls us into community. And so we're going to do this together. We're going to pray together because we don't have to live that way anymore. It's not too late. If you want to stand, you can still rise. You know, God has plans for you this weekend. God came here to meet with you this weekend. And you're not lost in the crowd. He sees you. So let's gather around those who are standing. And then let's all just close our eyes for a moment. And we're just going to pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who loved us so much that you couldn't bear to stay away at a distance. Instead, you're the God who came down the mountain to bring us home to you. And Jesus, I'm so, so thirsty tonight. And Jesus, I'm so sorry for the way that I've just been running around with my water jar, just looking everywhere for life, but refusing to come to you to have life. But Jesus, tonight I do, I'm coming to you, I'm saying yes to you, just as I am. And Jesus, I thank you that when you died on the cross, you died for my sin. But I also thank you that you came and you died for my shame. Lord, that you know me fully, but you love me fully as well. And that you're saying tonight, I will never be ashamed of you. So you never need to be ashamed of yourself. And Lord God, tonight I choose you. 
I choose life. I choose freedom. I choose to step into the relationship that I was made for with the God who loved me before the foundation of the world. And I thank you that you're here, that your presence is here with us. And I pray that right now you would just fill us up with the power of your Holy Spirit. And you would come and fill us to fullness with your love. A love that will never run dry. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you were somebody who who did pray that prayer tonight, then I just want to encourage you. There's a prayer tent over here with the blue flags outside of it. It's on my left and your right. And there are some resources there for you. If you made a decision tonight for the first time to come to know Jesus, to drink from that living water, then please do go over there after sometime this evening. And there'll be people there with the resources and people who would just love to pray with you and encourage you as well. Guys, thank you so much for listening. God bless you.